You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll start there. We're going to see God's judgment in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And then in chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see kind of the travels of the ark as it goes from uh, place to place there. And then in chapter 7, uh, we see the deliverance of, of Israel. So 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. And so the Philistines attack Israel. This is nothing new. This happens throughout the course of Israel's history that they're being attacked by various nations. And it's, it's interesting to me the question they ask in verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us? It was as if they were clueless to the fact that they had turned their back on God, that, that they had worshipped idols that they weren't serving God, that they were putting God on the same level as the Ashtaroths and the Baals and, and the gods of these surrounding nations. And they, they were wondering, why has the Lord defeated us? And it's a question that, that people ask in, in today as well. Why is this happening to me? You know, why, why is my family uh, falling apart? Why is my marriage falling apart? Well, let's just add up the pieces here and, and two plus two equals four. You know, when, when, you, when you put this kind of destructive uh, behavior into your marriage or into your family, there's no question as to why it's falling apart. It's not a surprise. And it shouldn't be a surprise uh, to us, and yet it is so often. As, as people will come and, and, and they'll ask, why is this happening to me? Why is this falling apart? Why is this uh, not going the way that, that I thought it would? And typically, oftentimes, there, there's a real uh, trail to follow, real easy uh, things to put together. But it doesn't mean to say that, that there's always uh, sin in our life as, as to why the Lord would allow destruction and defeat in our life. We, we face various trials because of what God wants to do in our life. But oftentimes, when we're being defeated and, and we sense that there's just destruction and things are falling apart... Oftentimes, we can look to the decisions that we've made and that we've turned our back on God uh, to see the reason for that. And look at the solution that these people come up with. Let's go get the ark and bring it out in, into the battlefield. And it will be like a good luck charm for us. We'll, we'll set the ark out there and surely we will win because we have the ark of the covenant. And they were excited. They, they brought the ark out and Eli, the priest 
allowed them to take the ark. This just continues to show the idiocy of this man. Why he would allow them to take the ark. He should have said, what in the world are you thinking? The ark is not some battle instrument. It's not a weapon. It's not a good luck charm. The ark was the representation of the presence of God. And it isn't that you need to run the ark out there to prove that you have the presence of God. It's that you need to begin to live as if God's presence is real to you. That was the key. But Eli lets them and they bring it out and they shout and they're excited. And again, it it proves that excitement does not prove or demonstrate that God's at work at all. You you can go into a a church service or, or you can see uh, someone who's very excited and they're jumping up and down and they're shouting and, and everything seems to be right on. And yet their life is totally opposed to God. And so excitement and being loud and demonstrative for the Lord can be a great thing. And, and I think it's something that, that God loves to see is excitement about Him and, and, and being demonstrative in our in our worship if that's what he's leading you to do but certainly it doesn't prove that God's at work and so they bring the ark out they shout the earth shakes now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout they said what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp so the Philistines were afraid for they said God has come into the camp and see, even the Philistines were, were misinformed. Their perspective was wrong about the presence of God. God was there wh- whether the ark was there or not. But it is interesting that the Philistines knew something of God. They, they were afraid at this point. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Interesting that they, they use a plural to, to talk about God. These mighty gods. No, there's one God. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. And so they're recalling something that happened 450 years ago. That was the impact that God's dealings with the Egyptians made upon that culture and that society. And it was because the Israelites talked about it. And they had turned their back on it at this point. But there there had been enough of God's works spoken of that it had traveled around and people knew about it and and God had a reputation of being powerful be strong they say to one another and conduct yourselves like men you Philistines that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you conduct yourselves like men and fight so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent there was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And so in just a matter of, of days, 34,000 Israelites are, are slain. Because they've turned their back on God and God is not fighting for them. God has brought this judgment. God has allowed the Philistines to come in to their life to bring judgment. And also the ark of God was captured And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And so the prophecy from chapter 2 and chapter 3 has now come forth. God's word always comes to pass. And these sons of Eli who were so wicked, who misrepresented God, they they have now been judged. And, And it's just like the Bible says, surely your sins will find you out. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but there is judgment 
for our sin. But thankfully, Jesus has taken that judgment for us. Thankfully, he died and he took that upon himself. And now we are just called to confess our sin, to give our sin to the Lord, not to hide it from him, not to pretend like he doesn't know or that somehow we can keep it from him. No, to be open and to be honest and never to leave a service like tonight without confessing your sin, without getting right with God. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh. Remember, Shiloh was the the center of, of Hebrew worship at this time. It's where the tabernacle was set up permanently, at least for now. And he ran to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, which was a sign of of grief, a sign of repentance. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And so four pieces of news kind of given in order of importance. Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a a great slaughter among the people. Your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. And so it wasn't the news of Israel's loss in the battle, that they were retreating and fleeing from the enemy. It wasn't the great slaughter. It wasn't the death of his sons. He knew that was coming. It had been prophesied. But when he heard about the ark, it was like he just lost composure. He falls backwards. He's old. He's heavy. I love that. He's he's old and he's out of shape. You know, makes makes me feel a little bit better, but I guess it's normal. He's, He's old. He's heavy. He falls backward. He breaks his neck. He had judged Israel and he'd been a priest in Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child. And if you go back to chapter 2 when this prophecy was originally given, it's made clear there that Eli's house would be judged, but that his family would continue on. And so that's why this is mentioned here about his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, that she was with child. It doesn't ever talk about this guy again, this Ichabod who would be the the one that would carry on Eli's line and lineage. But, but it's making mention of that because the word of God always comes to pass. And she's due to have a child. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. I mean, it's quite a bit to, to hear at one time. Hey, Israel is losing in battle. There's been a great slaughter. Uh, you're... you're father-in-law's dead. Oh, by the way, your husband's dead and the ark of God's been captured. So she just like gives up. The, the sorrow comes upon her so heavily, she goes into labor. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, do not fear for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. This would have normally been a time of rejoicing. 
in Hebrew culture that you, that you had a son. She doesn't even care. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, in some senses, she's right. The glory of God had departed because of their sin. God's presence wasn't with them in the power that, that he wanted it to be. But, it, but in another sense, she's totally wrong. Because God's glory can never be removed. Even when we don't sense it, even when we don't see it, God is always present. God will always be glorified. God's will will always come to pass. Maybe not through us, but he will always bring it to pass. And she names her son Ichabod, which literally means that the glory has departed. What a great name for your kid. I mean, way to, way to pass on the discouragement and the depression to your kid, right? He has to live with that the rest of his life. Hey, what's your name? The glory has departed. Oh, great. <laughs> but her perspective is, is kind of indicative of, of what people's perspective is today, too. That, that God must have departed from us because of the things that we see in, in, in the world right now. That God isn't working, that God isn't being glorified, that he's departed from us. And it's oftentimes in, the, in times like this that we're facing, you guys, that, that we have the greatest opportunity to glorify God. That we have the greatest opportunity to show the power of God. And not to give up and not to fear and not to worry and not to, to think that God has turned his back on us, but to seek God all the more. That's what this woman should have done. She should, she should have repented. She should have said, Lord, forgive us. God, may my son be one who follows you, whose heart is after you. Not may my son be one that perpetuates the fact that the glory has departed. But that's our tendency, isn't it? Just to give up, to despair, to throw in the towel. And when we're faced with our sin, you guys, when we're faced with our wrong decisions and choices, we have two choices of how we're going to handle that. Just like Judas and Peter, who basically committed the same sin. Judas and Peter were in the same boat. There wasn't any difference between what Judas did and what Peter did. Oftentimes, Judas gets this bad rap because he betrayed Jesus and he got paid for it. But in, in reality, Peter turned his back on him just the same. And you look at their lives, and, and it, it's really a tale of two ways of handling your sin. Judas and Peter were both overcome with the reality of their sin. They were both overcome with the fact that they had blown it, that they had turned their back on Jesus. Peter went out and wept. Judas was, was so overcome with conviction and with guilt that he went and hanged himself. But Peter, experiencing that same guilt and same conviction, allowed it to drive him to Jesus. And see, that's, that's the choice that we have. We can allow conviction to turn into condemnation where it drives us away from Jesus and it drives us into isolation and it drives us away from his word and away from prayer and away from worship and away from fellowship. Or we can allow conviction not to lead to condemnation, but to lead to repentance and to confession and restoration as Jesus restored Peter. That same opportunity was available to Judas. He just chose to turn from God. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're going to see the ark travel to different Philistine cities and then 
ultimately back to Israel. And so it's kind of the, the travels of the ark here. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. They were stoked. I mean, this was a big deal. They had the symbol of the power and the glory and the presence of the God of Israel. This was like a trophy. And, and I mean, they were excited. They were elated. And they brought it and they set it right next to their chief God, Dagon. And it was almost like they were saying, look, here's a, a God equal to Dagon, the most powerful God in their culture. And Dagon was the fish God. He was said to be the father of Baal. He was half fish, half man. And, and they set the Ark of the Covenant right there by Dagon. And it was almost like they had completed their quest for God. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. If you have to set your God in its place, if you have to pick your God up, there's a problem. And you know what? Man, when I read this today, it just hit me. How many people worship the God of money and how we've had to pick up money of late, haven't we? We've had to stoke the fires of our own God. We, we've had to pick him up and put him back in place. And people are scrambling and people are panicked and they're paranoid because their God is failing them and he will continue to fail them. But we don't recognize it so often, just like they didn't recognize it. Rather than saying, wow, look at Dagon. He's fallen prostrate before the Lord, prostrate before the presence of God. They didn't see it that way. Oh, you know, a breeze must have blown in or somebody must have knocked him over. Let's pick him back up. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time it goes further. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. And so here was a little stump of Dagon. No head to show that Dagon had no wisdom, no intelligence. No hands to show that Dagon had no power. He had no ability to accomplish anything. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, this word tumors here is, is a word that scholars are, are unsure about. Some people believe that it, it's speaking of a bubonic plague that would be brought on by these mice and these rats that we're going to see in the next chapter. And, and the Septuagint, actually, uh, the, the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew Old Testament, actually adds in that it was not only tumors, but it was also uh, rats that were overcoming them and, and eating their crops and ruining their, their harvest. And it does seem that that fits, as we'll look in, in chapter 6, uh, that, that they offer not only uh, these golden tumors, but also golden rats. And so it kind of seems to fit. Some believe that it is a bubonic plague brought on by these mice and these rats. But others translate this word tumors here literally as hemorrhoids. And, and it seems to kind of fit because it, 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 the word, uh, it speaks of, something that would have to do with your posterior and something that would have to do with your, your reproductive organs as well. And so 
I, I kind of lean toward the fact that these are hemorrhoids. And you can imagine an entire city being struck with hemorrhoids instantly. In one sense, it's hilarious, right? Because God has a sense of humor. I mean, he could have given them anything, but he gave them hemorrhoids. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, in other words, they got up in the morning, they had hemorrhoids, they're like, huh, you know, no preparation age, that hasn't been invented yet. But, you know, it'll go away. And then they're, they're hanging out with their friends, and why aren't you sitting down? I got hemorrhoids. And as they're going to work, and as they're interacting with everybody in town, it's like everybody's got them. It's like, wow, this is a problem, right? And the ark of God, of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us in Dagon our God. But rather than go, you know what, maybe we need to repent, maybe we need to turn toward this God, they just say, let's get rid of the ark. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. Give it to somebody else. And th- this was the next Philistine city. It wasn't even their enemies. These were their, their relatives. Yeah, send it down the road, but don't tell them. It's like a practical joke. So they carried the ark of God, of the God of Israel away. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck them into the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. So now they all have hemorrhoids. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So they sent it to the next Philistine city. And so it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So apparently, word was getting out. It's like, hey, we don't want this thing. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Now this is why many would believe that that this was more than just hemorrhoids, that it was like a bubonic plague, this deadly destruction. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So it took them seven months to figure out, let's get rid of this. But they still don't repent. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel... Do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. And so at least they were smart enough to know that they had offended God and that they needed to offer sacrifice to God. Isn't it amazing that sometimes the world is more perceptive about God than people that actually know him? Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats. And so they, they made these golden images of the exact thing that God had stricken them with. And, and that's why I believe that, that this was not only a plague, it was not only hemorrhoids, it was not only this deadly destruction, but it was also just an overwhelming amount of 
rats and, and mice that were destroying their crops. And they said, make five of each according to the, the number of the lords of the Philistines. There were five Philistine cities. We saw three of them there in chapter 5, but there were two more. And they were kind of a, a nation that was broken up into these five city-states. Therefore, they said, what is the trespass offering? And they, they said, make five golden tumors, five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? And so in other words, don't make the same mistake the Egyptians did. Don't continue to harden your heart because eventually God will harden your heart. He will ratify your decision to not heed his voice. And so they tell them what to do. Make a new cart. Take two milk cows which have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Now, this is a, a crazy idea in the sense that, number one, milk cows don't pull carts. They're for milk. Oxen pulled carts. Number two, you're going to put yokes on milk cows that have never had a yoke on them and expect them to go anywhere with any rhyme or reason. They're not trained for that. And you're going to take their calves away from them and expect them not to follow their calves. And they had a, a method for why they were going to do this. To prove, to see if it was really God's hand that was against them. And they told them, take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart. And put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. In other words, if these crazy cows who have never been yoked and who are going to be away from their calves, if they just go right up the road to Israel, a place they've never been, these are Philistine cows. If that happens, then it's obvious that God's hand was upon us and that it was him that was judging us. I mean, why in the world they, they hadn't figured this out by now and they had to do all this stuff to, to really know? I have no idea, but God's going to confirm it to him. And they said, look, if it doesn't happen, then, then it wasn't the Lord. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. I mean, you can picture the scene here. You know, when you read the Bible, put yourself in this situation. Think about... If you were walking down this road and all of a sudden you see two cows that are, you know, yoked, which would kind of be like, you know, a Geo Metro pulling a boat or something. You know what I mean? It would be like, what in the world is that? And they're, they're going up the road and they have the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant on a cart with these golden images of hemorrhoids and rats. Think about how this would have looked. And the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, which this word lowing means they weren't happy. They weren't happy about it, but God was directing them. God's hand was upon this whole situation. And they did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, which if you've 
ever tried to get animals to do anything, especially if you're not right there with them, you know this is a miracle. You just, you know, yoke up these two cows, cows pat them on the butt and expect them to go where they're going to go. It's, it's ridiculous. And the Lord of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. So they, they were curious and they're following close behind. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. I mean, can you imagine? You haven't had the ark for seven months. It was just absolute desperation and sorrow in the land. And all of a sudden, here comes the ark marching into this little village on a cart pulled by two cows. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now this was a huge sacrifice because wood was expensive and it's not super plentiful. In a, a cart that's already made and these cows would have been valuable, it would have been real easy to say, hey, some Philistine cows, put them away quick. But they offered them to the Lord. Now, this was kind of going against what, what God had prescribed for them because it was strictly prohibited for them to offer a sacrifice of a female animal. It was also prohibited for anybody but a priest to offer sacrifice. And it also had to be done in the tabernacle at the altar of sacrifice. And so they just kind of did their own thing here, but they were confident that their hearts were in the right place. And this is interesting also because later on in 2 Samuel, we're going to see the Israelites judged for putting the ark on a cart and for touching it. And yet the Philistines weren't judged for that. Uzzah is going to be judged later on for trying to balance the, the, the ark, and yet the Philistines aren't. And it's because the Philistines didn't know any better. They didn't have the law. They, they didn't know that it wasn't supposed to be put on a cart, that it was supposed to be carried by poles and not to be touched at all. And so in a sense, their hearts were in the right place. And so too, Joshua and these people that sacrifice these cows, their hearts are in the right place. And so God is, is not a God who judges everything the same all of the time. And we might think, well, I want God to do the same thing every time. That's justice. Well, that's not how God works. And God might deal harshly with one person who does something and not with another. I mean, look at the way he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, I'm glad that when I'm not being completely honest with, with where I'm at with the Lord and what I'm doing for God, that he doesn't strike me dead or I'd have been dead a long time ago. And if, if we think, well, God should judge the same all the time, then we'd all be dead if he judged everybody the way he did Ananias and Sapphira. God judges according to his sovereign will and according to, to what he has laid out for that particular person. And we see that here uh, in, this, in this story. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. And these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And so these were the five city-states. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh. 
Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now there's a couple things here. One is there, there's some really good textual evidence to support the fact that the King James and the New King James and most translations have this number wrong. It, number one, Beth Shemesh, and I've been there, couldn't have held 50,000 people. It's a small village. And so it just doesn't make sense. And also, the, the, the wording here would seem to, to better indicate in the Hebrew, 70 men, not 50,070 men. Now, the reason why it can be confused is because Hebrew numbers are really hard to figure out. And so when you're translating it from Hebrew into English or into whatever language, it, it has been confused. It really doesn't matter how many people it was, God judged the people that day. And this is, I, I think, something that, that really points to Jesus, but I'm not in any way saying that this is why they were judged. I think they were judged because they didn't follow the law, because they knew the law, and they didn't do what God had told them to do. They just acted very impetuously and, and against the word of God, and they, they take off the the... Uh, mercy seat over the top of the ark and they're looking down into it and and they they weren't obeying the lord but i think there's something that's really cool in in this uh that that points to jesus and and again i'm not saying this is the interpretation of this but this is something that that's great application and, and that is that the mercy seat is a picture of of the cross the the mercy seat literally is the same word that we find in the New Testament that is propitiation. When they sat down to translate the, the Old Testament into Greek, which, which is called the Septuagint, they translated mercy seat with the same Greek word found in the book of Romans translated propitiation. And so the mercy seat covered, it was the cover, it was the lid to the ark. And the ark represents the law. In fact, when you look at Hebrews chapter 9 and you see the things that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, it, it speaks of the law. It speaks of, of God's commandments. And the mercy seat covered that. And in a real sense, the mercy seat, the place of sacrifice, was never to be removed. And it is our tendency, isn't it? To remove the place of sacrifice, to remove the cross, to remove God's grace, and to try to, to get into the law and try to approach God by keeping his commands, by having a legalistic relationship with God, thinking that if I do this and this and this, that God will be happy with me. And in doing so, we're removing the mercy seat. We're setting it aside. We're saying, Jesus, I don't need your mercy. I don't need sacrifice. I, I want to approach you by the law. And man, when we do that devastation and destruction comes into our life. And we're separated from God. Because the only way that we can approach God is by the mercy seat, by propitiation. The fact that Jesus took the righteous demands of God, that he kept the law that we could never keep. And we have to, you guys, stay in that place of the covering of God. Otherwise, there's destruction that comes. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? 
So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come and take it up with you. And in chapter 7, we see God's deliverance, God's restoration of the people. Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And so here's Samuel now. He's beginning his public ministry. Eli is dead. And Samuel says, you know what? No more of this compromise. No more of this nonsense. No more serving false gods. No more putting God on the same playing field as all these other foreign gods. No, if you really want to serve God and you really want your life to be right with him, then get rid of all that stuff and start to serve Jesus. And you know what? The same thing could be said of us. The same thing could be said of us today. Hey, if you really want to serve God, if you really want to be right with him, if you want to quit having all of the destructive repercussions of your sin in your life, then get rid of the false gods and start serving Jesus. Quit elevating everything else to the same place as the Lord in your life or to even a higher place. And see, when you do that, you guys, then when, when all of our money is, is sucked from us, when, when we lose everything that we have, when, when our job falls out from underneath of us, when we lose a loved one, when relationships crumble, when our life falls apart, we always have Jesus. See, everything in this life can be taken from you except Jesus. Think about that. Everything. And eventually it will be. Eventually your health will be taken from you. As much as, as you want to be healthy and eat right and exercise, eventually it's going to catch up with you. As parents, our biggest fear is that something would happen to our child. Guess what? Eventually something is going to happen to our child. Probably not while we're alive. Hopefully not. Nobody wants to bury a child. That's probably the most devastating thing that could ever happen. But you know what? Everybody's going to die. Their health is going to, at some point, disintegrate. Your money will be taken from you. Maybe it already has been. Probably the worst thing you can do right now, if you have 401ks or stocks or IRAs, is look at it. You know, That's like, just don't even do it. But eventually, it's going to be taken. If you have money, if you're blessed where you have some money in the bank, or you've got equity in your home, or you're not in a bunch of debt, eventually it's going to go. Everything in this life is eventually going to go. Maybe sooner than you think. But Jesus will never fail you. He can never be taken from you. That's the only thing we can hold on to. And see, our tendency is to to grab and to grasp at the things that we can see, at at the things that that are right there, that that we want to make these gods out of. And that's what they did. They wanted to take the things that were right in front of them and make a god out of it because it was convenient, because it was easy. Man, what a truth for us today. Put away the false gods. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah 
and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so Samuel says, hey, you know what? Get everybody together and we're going to seek God. We're going to pray to the Lord. That probably hadn't happened in a long time. Hadn't happened in a long time in Israel's culture and society because of poor leadership. And, and right now, in these times of questions, of turmoil, of hopelessness, what do we see people doing? We see people putting their confidence in, in the next president. Guess what? Whoever becomes president is going to let you down. Maybe one will let you down more than the other. But I remember eight years ago, George Bush was going to single-handedly save our nation from moral decay. Well, eight years later, I don't think so. And now those very same people that were sending out emails and, you know, everybody's got to vote for Bush, he's the savior, and, you know, everybody's praying and vigils and lighting candles and Bush is going to be the next, you know, greatest thing. Now those same people hate him. He's got a 20% approval rating. George Bush wasn't the savior, and, and neither will either of these candidates be. Jesus is our savior. But we're running around and we're putting our faith in that or we're putting our faith in the bailout or we're putting our faith in, in some thing that's gonna save and bring hope. And what we ought to be doing is what Samuel did. Let's all get together and pray. Let's seek the Lord. You remember when Jesus ascended there in Acts chapter one and the 120 believers at that time were supposed to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them? And they had a lot of questions. I mean, they stood there gazing up into heaven. In other words, what in the world are we going to do now? Jesus is really gone. Where do we go from here? And the angel said, look, quit standing, gazing. Jesus is going to come back. And what did they do? They went to the upper room and it says they gathered in one accord and prayed. And you know what we ought to be doing right now in a time where we don't know what to do? We ought to be praying. We ought to be seeking God's face. That's what Samuel did. And that is what any good leader does in a time where you don't know what to do. You pray. There's other times where God says, look, I've told you what to do. Go do it. But the greatest thing you can do in times of hopelessness and despair and questioning is to pray. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. 
He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so as we move into chapter 8, we see Israel demands a king, and Saul's going to be raised up to be the king of Israel. And so uh, we enter into some, some interesting uh, portions of scripture here in the, in the coming weeks. So let's stand together, you guys. Father, we thank you for your word. God, so many things for us to apply here. God, so many things that, that you've spoken to my own heart. And God, I pray that we wouldn't just leave here tonight having learned another Bible story. God, that we wouldn't leave here tonight thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. That would have been really good for them. God, that we would leave here tonight seeking you, opening our heart to you, saying, God, what do you want to speak to me? God, that thing that you did speak to me, I want to make application of it. God, I want to be changed. Lord, we, we don't want to exist in our sin anymore. God, we want to repent. We want to turn to you like the Israelites did. God, we don't want to scramble around and try to make things happen in our own flesh. God, we want to turn to you. God, restore us like you did Peter, like you did the Israelites here. God, may we be like Samuel, who in times of, of great difficulty simply sought you and, and prayed to you. God, in, in these times where so many are, are filled with fear, where, where so many are filled with hopelessness, God, may we seek your face. God, may we return to you. Jesus, come and, and draw us closer to you than we've ever been before. Lord, may we, may we not walk away from here with condemnation, God, but with a real sense of what you did for us at the cross and that we can turn to you. God, it's our tendency to remove the, the mercy seat, to try to approach you by the law, to try to approach you by our goodness and our own righteousness, by keeping a list of rules and regulations and yet, God, you tell us to keep the mercy seat in place and to approach you with the knowledge and the understanding that you took our sin, that you took the wrath of God for us. And we can approach you by grace. And we can have an intimate and close relationship with you, God, despite our shortcomings, in spite of our difficulties, in spite of our sin. And Lord, when we do sin, we can confess it and you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we cry out for that tonight. Bless the rest of our week. Lord, may we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks for listening and God bless.